We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. from James chapter 3. Not many of you shall become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although there are large and driven by strong winds, They are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow? flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Would you join me for just a moment as we pray together? Gracious God, you... You know, there is a lot of complexity in this room this morning, that our stories are unique, and they are full of beauty, and they are full of brokenness, and they're full of pain, and they're full of suffering, and they're full of regret, and they're full of shame. And for some of us, we are full of belief, and others of us, we are full of doubt and unbelief, wondering if these things could ever be true. Some of us, we can't even believe we're actually sitting in a worship service this morning. God, we, our stories, they are so varied and so different. But in another sense, they are the exact same. And that is we are all more broken than we know and we are more in need of your love and your grace than we know. And we pray that you would come and meet us now wherever we find ourselves this morning. Thank you that you see us and you see our stories and you know us better than we know ourselves and you know what we need to hear and you know exactly how we need to hear it. And so we look to you this morning to speak by your spirit and through your word and for our good and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, we are working our way through the book of James, and uh, if you're new this morning, uh, and you're new perhaps maybe to the Bible, never really read the book of James, what we've been saying is this, the book of James is a book about faith, and it actually challenges our notions of faith, because James talks about faith in a way that isn't just about belief, but it's actually about behavior. I've said this each week, that a Christian is someone who is saved by faith alone. Friends, there is nothing that you can do to merit God's love and approval in your life. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't be moral enough. You can't pray enough. You can't go to church enough. We are saved by faith alone that comes to us through grace, the grace of Jesus alone. See, we are saved by faith alone But what James is saying is this, faith that saves is never alone. It always leads to a changed life. It always leads to what James calls living faith. There's a big difference between faith that is dead and faith that is alive. This is the whole point of the book of James. Dead faith is all up here. It's just beliefs in your head. You may be able to sing these songs and pray these prayers and confess the things we're going to confess later, but when you walk out of this room, your life is no different. It's not changed. James says that's dead faith. He says, but living faith, that is when you have a a, a real, personal, vital, ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, when you know him and not just things about him, that it begins to transform your life in every area. It produces living faith. And we've been looking for the last several weeks at how this living faith changes the way we handle suffering uh, and how it changes the way that we relate to the Bible. And last week we talked about how it, it shapes us into people who care about the poor and we are concerned about issues of justice. And over the next couple weeks we're going to talk about how it shapes the way we think about our money or our lack of it. And it shapes the way that we pray now, in this passage today, James is actually focusing on something, on something that I think most of us, we tend to not think too much about, and that is our words, or as James calls it, the tongue in this passage. You know, words are important. I learned a couple new words in the last week, like atmospheric river. <laughs> That's a new one for me. Did that just start? Like, why have we not heard that word before? and bomb cyclone. Those are fancy words for saying, it's going to rain a lot today. And kudos to all of you who came to church last week. You, you, are, you are the true church people. I mean, it was pouring rain in this place. It was ridiculous. Uh, we missed all of you who weren't able to make it here last week. Um, Words, you know, words are important. We, we tend to not think about them a lot, but they're important. Uh, I'll let you in on a little secret here. I, every week when I stand up here to do this, I have this sense of trepidation. Uh, because my, my job is not to give you my words. That's not my job. My job is to try and help you and really help me and all of us understand God's word. And that's a weighty thing. And I feel that weight every week, but I felt it even more this week. Because did you hear verse 1? Yeah, you're all like, yeah, we were paying attention to that one. (laughs) Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's It's a warning 
to pastors about their words and how we're going to be judged more strictly. I read that and I thought, I got to get out of this business. Like, I'm going to go sell insurance or something. That's like what pastors do when they leave ministry. They go sell insurance. I mean, that is a sobering verse. And, I, you know, in all seriousness, pray, pray for your pastors. Pray for me. Pray for Dave. Pray for Chase as he's ministering to students at UC Berkeley. Pray that we would be faithful to proclaim God's word and not our own. Uh, but let me just tell you, you are not off the hook. <laughs> this is not just a passage about pastors. Because in verse 2, James says, we all stumble in many ways. And James is talking to any and every Christian about their speech. In fact, if you go all the way back to, to the first chapter of James, verse 26, this is really kind of well-known verse where James says, he says, true religion is, meaning a true Christian, someone who really knows Jesus, he says, true, uh, he says, true religion, one of the marks of, tr of true religion, of a true Christian, is someone who can control their tongue. See, if you believe the gospel, it changes everything about your life, including your words. What you say, how you say it, who you say it to. And, you know, I wonder how much thought we've actually given to those things this week, to our words. We, we tend to not think about them a lot, but, you know, I keep saying this every week. James got, he has five chapters in this book. It's so short. So everything he is picking is, it's so important. It's so critical to an authentic Christian life. Words. James makes a really big deal about them. And this passage has so much to teach us. So let's dive in. Here's the first thing it teaches us. The power of our words. The power of our words. Words have incredible power. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but these 12 verses, they are filled with metaphors and with analogies concerning our words. James talks about wildfires and wildlife and fruit trees <laughs> And, and fresh water, and we're going to get to all of those in just a minute, but let's start with the very first two metaphors, which are horses and ships. Now, these metaphors, they are so simple, but the, the point they're making is so profound. So what is James talking about here? Well, in verse 3, he says, the tongue is like a bit used on a horse. Now, horses are not my thing. I've been very open about that here. had a very traumatic experience as a child, scarred. I'll probably never get on a horse again in my entire life. But, you know, horses, what, are, what is a bit? It's this little piece of metal that goes in the horse's mouth. And it is so tiny and it is so small, but it is the thing that the rider uses to control this massive animal, this little thing that has this incredible power. And then he says... Think of a large ship, you know, this massive ship. What controls it? What determines the direction that it goes? And James says, and what you notice is he says, a very small rudder. Do you see the, the similarity here? Something small that has so much power. And then verse 5, after these two metaphors, James says, likewise the tongue. Now, anatomically, the tongue is this small thing. I read this week that it's, it's less than half a percent of a person's body weight. 
And yet, despite its small size, it has this disproportionate power. Pound for pound, it is the strongest muscle in the body, in the human body. And and you see, the, the metaphor is simple, but the point is profound. Words, these little things that we put together, these little things that come out of our mouths, sometimes within just a single syllable, have incredible power. And you say, well, power for what? Power to do what? Well, go back to the metaphors, actually. The bit determines which way the horse goes. The rudder dictates the direction of the ship. Words have tremendous power to direct our lives, to shape our lives, and to shape the lives of those around us. I was talking to a friend this week. He was raised by a single mom. His dad was in prison when he was two years old. Didn't get out till he was 21. He was raised by a single mom. They grew up, he grew up in Section 8 housing. He said that when they would, uh, and, and he grew up in a very wealthy place, actually. Grew up in Marin. He was very poor, surrounded by a lot of wealth. He said, all my friends were wealthy. He said, but when my mom and I would go to the gas station, we would, we would have to look for coins underneath the car seats just to be able to get a gallon of gas just so we could get to wherever the next place was that we were going. And he said, he said he lived as a kid with this constant inner voice telling him that he would never amount to anything. That, that, that the voices inside of him and a lot of the voices around him were saying his future was going to be no different than his dad's. But you know what changed his life? It was the voices of several families in that community who loved him and who took him in as their own, and who told him that he could have a future that was very, very different from his dad. The power of words. I was thinking this week about my own dad. Uh, My dad was raised by uh, an alcoholic father. And uh, uh, my, my grandfather never told my dad that he loved him. And he never told him that he was proud of him. So my dad was determined to be a very different kind of dad. And so the two sentences, and I'm not exaggerating this, the two sentences that my dad said to me more than any other were, I love you and I'm proud of you. And he would tell me that even like when I was like, I mean, he would tell me that ad nauseum as a kid and you kind of got a little sick of it. And now I'd give anything to be able to hear him say those words to me again. And I'm 44 years old. And then he'd call me, you know, even kind of in his older age before he passed, and he would leave me these three-minute long voice messages, which is what, you know, it's like the older we get, the longer our voice messages become. And, and, and at the end of every single one, he would tell me those two sentences. And I'm telling you, those two sentences changed my life, friends. They have had a, 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 an impact on me that I'm not even sure I quite yet understand because you see nothing has the power to shape our lives and to steer our lives like the words that are spoken over our lives nothing has the power to affirm us to build us up and to give us life like words and I just wonder how differently we would talk to other people if we really believe that 
I wonder how different our words would have been this week to our friends, to our coworkers, to our spouses, to our children. And you know, how, if we really believe this, how would it change the way that we talk to one another as a church family? I'll tell you one thing that we would do a lot more of, encouragement. Encouragement. I heard someone once say that encouragement is the way we eulogize someone before they die. See, why do we wait till someone is gone to say nice things about them? Encouragement. I mean, listen to what, listen to what the Bible says about encouragement. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now that's a challenging verse because, see, you have to just kind of stop right here and ask yourself, who was built up this week because of words that I spoke to them? Who was encouraged this week because of words that I spoke to them? Do you know the power that you possess with your words? See, we we talk a lot about power in society and people who have it and people who don't. And that's a real conversation, but I want you to know something. Everyone in this room has power. You have power with your words. You have power to speak life to people. Do you know that you could say something today that could radically change someone's life today, or maybe this week, or maybe for their entire life. Do you know that this is how God uses his words? See, remember God's work of creation when he brought life into existence? How did he do it? He did it with a word. And God said, let there be light. And, and, and do you remember how God did his work of salvation? how it is that we can actually come into a relationship with him and know him. He did it through the word, the logos, through Jesus. God uses his words to give life, to build up, to create, to affirm. Now, what if we used our words in the same way? By the way, this is why we so desperately need community. We talk about this all the time at Resurrection Oakland. You cannot do Christianity on your own. We desperately need community, every single one of us, because we don't just need to speak these words to other people. We actually need to hear them from other people. We need to hear them from one another. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, the word of Christ in my brother or sister's heart is stronger than the word of Christ in my own. What he's saying is there are going to be times in your life as a Christian where you cannot hear the music of the gospel and you need friends. You need community to speak words of truth and words of love and words of encouragement into your life over and over again. The power of words to affirm, to love, to build up And that actually brings us to the second thing this passage teaches us, which is the problem with our words. 
Look at the, the next metaphor. I love this because I think the metaphors just kind of like really walk us through what James is trying to teach us here. Look at the next metaphor. It comes in verses 5 and 6. And James says, the tongue is like a fire. It's like this small spark that can set an entire forest ablaze. Now, we, we live in Northern California, so we know something about this, right? We know the devastation that a single spark can bring. It can, it can burn down acres and acres. And James is actually saying the same is true with our words. That words don't just have, they, they have this destructive power as well. In fact, in verse 8, James says, the tongue, look at this. I mean, this is like strong language. The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. You see, here's the problem with our words. Words have this incredible power to bring life, but they also have this incredible power to, uh, 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 they're, they're like poison where they can take life, where they don't build up, but they tear down. And they don't affirm, but they hurt. Proverbs 18, 21 says this, the tongue has the power of life and death. In other words, the tongue, it can do wondrously positive things, and it can do terribly hurtful things, but it's never a neutral thing. You know, your words are never neutral. They're always doing one or the other. I'm sure many of you have heard about uh, what happened to Alec Baldwin. Was it just two weeks ago, I think? He was filming a movie on set. Uh, they were filming a scene. He was handed what he thought was basically a, a cold gun or like a toy gun. And he fired it. And it was a loaded gun. And it killed one of the crew members. Tragic. I mean, it's, it's kind of a a jarring illustration to use, but how, how much more cautiously would you tread with your words if you knew that, it, how much more cautiously would you tread if you knew you had a loaded weapon in your hand? You see, James is saying in this passage, you have something just as deadly and you carry it around with you every single day. No one has to put it in your hands. No one has to give it to you. It is always on you, your words. They have this capacity for destruction. They can really hurt people. A couple years ago, our family was eating dinner together, and my, my young daughter was probably, I don't know, four or five at the time, and, you know, four or five-year-olds say some pretty hilarious things. And so we're having dinner, and uh, she said, can we get a cat? And I said, we've got a dog. You know, we, we can't get a cat. We don't need a cat. And she said, well, when our dog dies, can we get a cat? And my, my other daughter, who's a little older, she said, well, you know, we can't get a cat because dad's allergic to cats. And my younger daughter said, well, well when dad dies. <laughs> Can we get a cat? I said, I am right here. Like, I can hear every word that you are saying. 
And I joke, but it, it really is, it's, 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 it's not a joke. You know, words are not a joke. Lady Gaga, in an interview several years ago, she said this. Growing up, I was called really horrible names very loudly in front of huge crowds of people. And my schoolwork suffered. I didn't want to go to class, and I was a straight-A student, so there was a certain point in my high school years where I just couldn't even focus because I was so embarrassed all the time. Now, that was decades ago, but the scars of those words have not gone away because this is what she said at the end of the interview. She said, to this day, my closest friends say, Gaga, you know everything is great. You're a singer. Your dreams have come true. And yet still, when certain things are said to you over and over again as you're growing up, it stays with you and you wonder if they're true. Every person in this room, every single one of us, we, we can quote phrases and sentences and sound bites from our lives that other people have said to us. Things that we have never forgotten about how we look or where we're from or mistakes that we've made or things that we can and can't accomplish in life. And these words, they have seared themselves. They've seared themselves into our minds. We've been, we've been wounded by words. And guess what? We have wounded others with our words. Remember, the, you know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? That is maybe the dumbest thing we've ever said in the history of the world. Because the reality is, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can actually mar and destroy your heart and soul. Bones ultimately heal, but hearts and souls do not always heal from things that have been said to us. I mean, some of us have been in therapy for years, literally because of a single sentence that was spoken to us. Words have incredible power. They're like poison. That's what James is saying. They poison our psyches. They poison our relationships, they poison our marriages, they, they, they poison our church. One, one commentator I read this week, he said this, he said, sparks are constantly flying out of our mouths in every direction, spraying in every direction, a bit of innuendo, a harsh word, a snipping to take someone down, some gossip juicily passed on, a dash of exaggeration as we recount something to others, it can all seem so harmless at the time. A spark is such a small thing after all, and yet what a great forest fire is set on fire by a small spark. Just a few careless words, either deliberate or accidental, and the result can be untold damage. Careers have been toppled. Just ask John Gruden that, by the way, if you know his story from the last couple weeks. Careers have been toppled. Marriages have fallen apart. Conflicts have been started, and decades of self-loathing have been generated, all because of carelessly uttered words. I think what's so interesting about this is that 
As the church today, we tend to focus on sins of sexuality, but when you open the New Testament, you find that it might, it focuses just as much, if not more, on sins of speech. You know, the first sin after the fall entered into the world, you know what it was? It was, it was Adam blaming Eve. It was a sin of speech. And listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, I'm afraid that when I come to you, I will find quarreling. He's, he's writing to a church, by the way, that I will find quarreling, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, boasting, and disorder. These are all sins of speech. See, how much do you think about your words? How much do you keep watch over your words? James says this is a really big deal. And I, I, we, we tend to not think about this stuff very much. Look, look, at, look at what he says in verse 9. He says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Saying, you know, one moment we can be praising God, and the next moment we're, we're cursing people who are made in God's likeness. And I know something about this because I've been driving down the road, literally listening to worship music, singing. And someone cuts me off, and I say, idiot. <laughs> and what's really interesting about this is James, I want you to notice this, in that verse, he does not contrast blessing people with cursing people. He contrasts blessing God with cursing people as if to say, when you curse people who are made in God's image, it's like cursing God himself. And see, what if we actually believed that? I mean, how would that change our words, our words on social media, our words when we're talking about people who are on the other side of the political aisle? our words to our roommates, to our family? How would it change our words to people that we've hurt? Let me ask you a question. We should all, we should all be asking this question from this passage. Who do I need to seek out this week and say, I am sorry for my words. I'm sorry for the words that I used and how hurtful they've been to you. Will you forgive me? And it might be somebody in this room. And I want to encourage you to do that. Because you'll be free. <laughs> you know, here, here's, what's, here's what's really, we've been talking about the power of words and the problem of words. Here's what's maybe most convicting about this whole thing is that what comes most naturally to us are not words of encouragement. And they're, they're not words of praise or generosity or compassion. But what comes most naturally to us are words that slander, words that accuse, words that are thoughtless and cutting, words that tear down rather than build up. And so the question is, what can change us? What can heal the poison of our words? And that actually brings us to the last point. How do we use our words to give life rather than take it, to love and affirm rather than criticize and demean? Well, that brings us to this very last set of metaphors that James uses. And there's actually two different sets. And the first is in verse 7. Let me read this. He says, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. And James is saying, 
We have trained animals to do all sorts of things. You know, go to SeaWorld, and you'll see a killer whale kiss someone on the lips. Watch Tiger King, and you will see a wild beast sleeping in bed with a human being, a household pet. We, James says, we can tame almost anything, but we cannot tame the tongue. That's what he says. And it would be, I want you to hear this because it would be so easy to leave here today and thinking, I am going to just try a little harder with my words. And the truth is we all, we all need to actually try a little harder. But we also need more than that. That is not enough. Self-determination, willpower. You'll come back next week even more discouraged than you're feeling right now. <laughs> and you see, if you don't understand this, you'll, you'll miss what James is saying in this passage. This is not like some self-help book where James says, okay, do these seven things, follow these seven steps, and then you'll be healed. He actually does the exact opposite, and he says, you cannot heal yourself. No human being can tame the tongue. You cannot heal yourself, so what can? And the last metaphor comes in verses 11 and 12. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grape grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. The, the, the metaphor is simple, but the point is profound. Just as fresh water comes from one source and salt water comes from another source, you can't, you can't get both of those things from the same source. Just as grapes come from grapevines, and just as olives come from olive trees, so our words come from a source. What's the source? Listen to James's older brother, Jesus. I said this at the beginning of the sermon series. James is Jesus's little brother. And listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. See, James, Jesus is talking like James now. He's talking about fruit and where it comes from. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to understand what's in your heart, look at what's on your tongue. If you want to understand your heart, look at your words. Bitter words flow from a bitter heart. Self-righteous words flow from a proud heart. Gossiping words flow from an insecure heart. Critical words flow from a critical heart. Cynical words flow from a cynical heart. Angry words flow from an angry heart. Unforgiving words flow from an unforgiven heart. No human being can tame the tongue. That is James's way of saying only God can. Only God has the power to heal the tongue because only God has the power to heal the heart. And if our words are going to change, then our hearts must change. If you want to speak, and you ought to, if you want to speak words of affirmation, 
to other people. You need a heart that feels affirmed. If you want to speak words of love, you need a heart that knows that it is love. Now here is the great question of the day. Where do you get that sense of love and affirmation? I want you to notice how James refers to God in verse 9. He, he calls him Lord and Father. And I don't think that really strikes us like it should because throughout the Old Testament, God is called Lord. Actually, Yahweh, that's what Lord means. It's the primary way that God is referred to in the Old Testament, Lord. But God is referred to Father only a handful of times in the Old Testament. Only a handful of times. And all of that begins to change in the New Testament at a very particular point. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being baptized. We, we saw baptism today. Jesus was baptized when he began his public ministry. And Matthew chapter 4 says, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and, and, and the voice of the Father was heard saying, this is my Son, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. You know what that is? That is the voice of love and affirmation. And it is the voice that we all long to hear. It is, it is the voice of the creator of the universe, not just, not just a parent, but it is the voice of the creator of the universe saying, I love you, and I am proud of you, and I delight in you. And Jesus lived his entire life with the sense of the love and the affirmation of the Father. It, right after his baptism, in Matthew chapter 5 is when the Sermon on the Mount starts. Jesus preaches his very first and most famous sermon. Do you know that in, in, in this short sermon, he refers to God as Father 17 times? It's more than the entire Old Testament, I think. He refers to God as Father, and then he says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you pray, pray like this, and we do this every week. We'll do it again today at the end of the service. He says, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. And do you know that whenever Jesus prays, that is how he prays in the Gospels. He always refers to God as Father, which means that he was always praying with a sense of God's love and affirmation on his heart. All the time, every time, except one time. One time. The one time that Jesus does not cry out to God as Father is on the cross. He doesn't cry out, Father. He cries out, my God, my God. And when people mocked him, and they beat him, and they said terrible things about him, and they slandered him, and they used really wounding words against him. You know what the prophet Isaiah says? He says, he opened not his mouth. No words of anger. No words of cursing those who cursed him. No words of unkindness towards his oppressors. No, what does he say? Father, forgive them. He, he, he speaks words of kindness. And when he cried out to God on the cross, he said, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? You know what that means? It means that in this moment, Jesus lost something that he always had. See, if you feel forsaken, you know what that means? It means that you do not feel loved. And you do not feel affirmed. On the cross, Jesus lost the love and the affirmation of the Father so that we could have it. So that our hearts could be filled full with the sense of God's love and approval. So that we could be affirmed to the highest heavens. So that we could hear God the Father speak the same words over our life that he speaks over Jesus' life. My son, my daughter, whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. See, if you want to change how you speak, your heart has to be transformed. And that's, that's why we come to this table every week. To hear the words of our good Father, the words of his love and approval over our lives again and again and again. Not because our words have been perfect, but because Jesus' has. See, and when we know him, when we know him, when we know Jesus as our brother, and we know Christ, and we know God as our Father, when we have a sense of his love on our hearts, then, then, then we will be able to go out and speak words of encouragement, words of affirmation, words of truth and love, and words that bring people life rather than taking it from them. So that's the invitation to you this morning in this table, is to come and hear God's words over your life. And they are the same words that Jesus heard at his baptism. If you have placed your faith and trust in him, God looks at you and he says, my child, who I love, in whom I'm well pleased. May God give us the grace to hear those words this morning. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table and for all that you desire for us to hear from you in it and for all that you have done to make those words possible. I pray that you would give us grace this morning to hear all that you have to say to us because for some of us, this is the hardest thing to believe, actually, that you could think this way about us, that you could feel this way about us, that your affections for us could run wild. So would you help us? Would you give us faith? And would you give us living faith? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.